I'm Mick Garrison. We are back with the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Well, really, you ask producer Joe, and producer Joe will ask me anything on your behalf. Joe Russo, how are you? I am well, Mick Garris. How are you? Uh, never better, as we say. Uh, shall we jump in? Let's dive without All a right. We got a lot of questions today. Uh-oh. Okay. Uh -oh. We're working what? for our that's right. We're working for it. Monster Movie Happy Hour wants to know what your earliest childhood memory was of watching a movie in a theater or drive-in, and was there popcorn? <laughs> you know, we didn't really pay the exorbitant prices for popcorn when, when I was a kid. You know, we were very much a blue-collar family, and we would pretty much only go to the drive-in because I was one of four kids, and then the two parents we would go in our 57 Chevy station wagon to the Reseda drive-in here in the Valley. And um, uh, so we would bring our own popcorn and like a six pack of bubble up, something like that, rather than go to the concessions. We could never go to an indoor movie and buy the uh, concessions there. But one of my earliest memories of going to a movie was seeing Psycho when I was like seven or eight years old, when it came out in the movie theater. And people thought of uh, horror movies as being for kids uh, because of all the, you know, I was a teenage and, and all the AIP and Roger Corman things that were aimed at a youth market. Not necessarily at seven or eight years old, but um, the youth market. So we went, and of course, Alfred Hitchcock was on TV. We knew him as a very avuncular host and wry and witty and funny. Nobody imagined what we were in for. I actually did a, uh, a little uh, story about taking that trip to the drive-in that was in a tribute to Robert Block. And the story was called Four in the Back. And it was about that experience of going to the Reseda drive-in and seeing Psycho for the first time. But we would taunt my little sister D always with, you know, Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates, tap her shoulder and turn around and roll our eyes back in our heads and go, ah! so, uh, but that nobody imagined 30 years later, I would be directing the sequel prequel to it. But that, that's one of the first uh, memories I have of going to the movies. You know, and, and what a, what a great memory to have it pay off in such a, such a spectacular way. <laughs> Pretty spectacular, yes. Yeah. Uh, Nico asks, do you have any favorite horror movie posters? Yeah, I own a handful. There are a bunch of them that I have acquired over the years. I'm not a collector, but uh, Toby Hooper gave me a copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre poster, which I, uh, I, I cherish dearly. And I do have an original poster from Hitchcock's Psycho, which obviously there's more than one reason it has a special place in my heart. So, so those are two pretty, pretty amazing pieces of artwork for amazing groundbreaking movies, both of which mean a lot to me. Do you have a favorite of your own movies? Is there one poster that stands out amongst the, the rest? You know, Sleepwalker is, is, is not bad. Critters 2 is more iconic in some ways, but I didn't do enough features to have posters. You know, there's some that I wrote like Fly 2. I have some posters from some of the miniseries and stuff. Um, but uh, maybe of the three features I did that were released theatrically in the States, maybe writing The Bullet would be my favorite. 
that does have a really cool poster. Uh, I agree. Yeah, it was artwork as opposed to Photoshop, which was rare in the decades of the 2000s. That's true. I, I mean, but and and but one of the ones that you wrote, I think, you know, the Hocus Pocus has some iconic. Oh, that Hocus Pocus is is really something. It's true. Uh, it's true. Struzan. True Struzan, who's one of the greats of all time, and and it's really beautiful and has has definitely uh, lasted over the decades without much change. Absolutely. Uh, Dystopia Rising asks, do you have any favorite horror experiences that are not movies or books like haunted houses, immersive experiences, etc.? Do you uh, do you like going to haunted mazes, Mick? You know, I've gone to Universal Horror Nights um, now and then. The, the most memorable Halloween horrific uh, experience that I had, however, was not entertaining. Uh, oh. A couple of... <clears throat> it's actually kind of a heavy story, but um, a couple of friends uh, and joined me and Cynthia. Uh, they had a friend who was the night manager at a mortuary. And so wouldn't it be cool to go in after hours to a mortuary and see what it's like there? Well, we thought, Sure, let's do that. We've been raised on horror films and the like. And uh, we went, and in this case, it was upstairs. Uh, he took us in, all the lights were out, everything was closed down. And he put on the, there, they were overhead China hat lights that uh, were uh, extending from the ceiling. So there were pools of light. It was very cinematic, very dark and shadowy and creepy. And he led us along, said, this is where uh, some of the bodies lie in state. And wow. so there were a couple of open coffins there and it was chilling and respectful. And we just looked at that and thought, wow, these are really people who occupied these bodies before, but no longer do. Then he said, and this is where uh, the autopsies are done or the embalming is done. And there were all these tables with bodies on them. Some of them fully covered with sheets, some not. Almost all of them elderly. But something that was really hit us deeply and made for a very mournful night were two of the slabs where the embalming was done. There was one that was a very large woman covered with a sheet and her hand was extended out from the end of that sheet. And on the other was a tiny infant's body covered by a sheet yeah. and that arm extended out there. And um, that was incredibly jarring and in a way led to um, riding the bullet in that, you know, real horror when you're confronted with real horror even if you are someone who specializes in it as a writer or a filmmaker or an artist or illustrator or whatever the real thing is much more chilling and deep than any creepy stories that are fictional are and being confronted with this uh, beginning and end of cycle bodies right next to each other, practically holding hands, was an image that will live with me for the rest of my life. I bet. Wow, that's 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 incredible, and not so uh, sorry to get away from the uh, Halloween houses and things like so, that. So, what do you what do you think about Universal Horror Nights? <laughs> <laughs> 
chainsaws and knee pads yeah <laughs> all right uh well th this is a fun one this next one's a fun one momo asks when you interviewed david cronenberg john landis and john carpenter for the now infamous fear on film interview <laughs> uh did you think that all three films would still be so revered today so many years later well i knew they were special movies at the time but we have to remember all three of them had been very accomplished before those three movies. Absolutely. Landis had already made um, the, the Blues Brothers and uh, uh, National House. Lampoon's Animal House. Carpenter had already made Halloween and The Fog. Cronenberg had already made Scanners. So they were already there. But these were the first studio horror movies for all three of them. And uh, for Landis, uh, I guess you could call Schlock a monster movie, but not a horror movie. Sure. Um, but American Werewolf in London and The Thing were both monster movies and both of them, their first experiences with a studio level budget and really, you know, the ability to do something full scale. And Cronenberg, it was still made independently. Videodrome was produced by Pierre David independently with a distribution deal uh, with Bob Ramey, who headed up Universal at the time, who had made the deal for Scanners when he headed up Avco Embassy. So I knew all three of these filmmakers because of those other movies and various other reasons. But um, so I had very high hopes for all three, um, both The Thing and An American Werewolf in London became iconic and classics and and eventually for the thing hugely successful even though when it was released it was not but it has gone on to fame and glory videodrome is also it's iconic it's not nearly as well known as those other two movies but it was the first studio release for david cronenberg and although it didn't fare that well at the box office it didn't need to because it didn't cost much so um they were all landmark movies for all those three directors and because I was working for the studio at the time and had a relationship with the three of them, then the ability to sit down and have that round table, in a way, the round table has become as classic as those three movies. Yeah, I mean, it popping up on, on Blu-rays and YouTube and all over the place. But yeah, no, it is, it is an incredible zeitgeist moment that you got all three of those filmmakers with those three movies at that, that exact time. Um, Max asks, what are your thoughts on James Whale as a filmmaker? And have you seen Gods and Monsters? Oh, sure. I saw Gods and Monsters when it came out. After all, it was executive produced by Clive Barker and Bill Condon wrote and directed it. And it was about the making of The Bride of Frankenstein. So how could I have missed that? Um, but, uh, you know, James Whale was a very talented director before he did The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, and Frankenstein, he, he had done um, the World War I movie, which was so important that I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But, um, <laughs> it, you know, it was a horror movie in its own right, just because of the horrors of war. But then, you know, Todd Browning, who did uh, the original Dracula. At the time, James Whale did the original Frankenstein. They were very, very different. Um, 
Whale was much more cinematic and knowledgeable about the tools of cinema than Browning was. Browning was a very potent filmmaker, but he really was all about interesting faces and interesting surroundings and the like, and let the camera capture it. Whereas Whale more cannily staged for the camera and uh, was really had a, I think a deeper command of those tools of cinema. Whereas Browning, as a former sideshow guy from a circus, um, you know, he was a showman, but his camera use was much more, I won't say pedestrian, because this was at a time of the growing up of cinema, the learning what the tools were. But Whale himself, as a, as a pictorial storyteller, was much more advanced in his usage of those tools. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it. I think it's perfectly clear when you watch Dracula and you see how theatrical it is. Yeah, um, and a lot of the scenes almost feel like stage plays themselves. Versus Whale, who, especially in Bride, really started to push the boundaries of. of yeah, cinema. Bride of Frankenstein was revelatory. I mean, it really expanded what a horror movie could be, and he had this very wry sense of humor and a a sense of camp before there was such a thing as camp. And uh, Ernest Thesiger's performance in that was a real uh, representation of that. And, and that was very much a part of, of Wales personality. Yeah, no, and an iconic director and an iconic movie. Uh, MJ wants to know if you think there could ever be a 3d animated horror movie, a la something like from Pixar. I'm sure there could be, and I'm sure it could be done effectively. You know, it's not going to be Monsters, Inc. It's not going to be uh, that sort of thing. Mostly uh, animated horror is done for kids, and it's playful, and it's not scary, and all of that. There's no reason that they couldn't do it. Um, I would love to see it. Uh, it's all about creating, uh, digitally creating the same thing that we do um, with live action. Uh, and I would love to see that because half of what you see in genre movies now is animated anyway. You just yeah. don't know it. Sure. If it's done well, you don't know it. So sure, I'd love to see somebody tackle that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you know, there's been a couple kids movies, like you said, Monsters, Inc. And I think Monster House specifically to dabble yeah. in it, but they haven't seen a full on uh scary horror movie and i think the thing you know i mean imagine the monsters you could really create with the freedom of without real life limitations you know yeah i mean nightmare uh, before christmas is it's really a good stop motion animation uh, yeah, that yeah. has some genuinely scary scenes in it absolutely and, oh it's, it's brilliant yeah. brilliant uh it's amazing that the probably the two best disney halloween movies came out that exact same year uh <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I don't know if i can say they're the two best but... well i i will for you uh <laughs> all right uh our engineer our post producer and engineer chris price writes while it's easier than ever to make a movie these days the most difficult task of making an independent film is securing funding if you were a 20-something filmmaker or in my case 30-something how would you go about getting 10,000 plus for a project? And please don't say Kickstarter or asking for donations. Yeah, well, 
crowdfunding to me, it's, it's a world I don't understand. It's a world I don't want to understand. I don't want to be indebted to anybody in that regard. So uh, sell your car. And, you know, I I don't know. I've never had to raise the money for a film, something like Nightmare Cinema. We did that, but we raised the money with a film production company or a couple of film production companies. Right. And we were able to do that. Um, $10,000 is a, a big amount of money to raise to make a movie. It's not much money to make a movie. If you have a script that you can find someone who thinks that's a bargain because that is a true bargain for a feature film. If you can make it at 10,000 bucks, by all means go for it. But I, I wouldn't know how to raise the money other than finding out who's making and funding and financing um, movies within the genre you're working in and, and go to them, meet somebody who knows them. There, there are certainly agents who can help in that regard, but if you want to make it independently, um, take a second job, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're I, not, if you're not going to use crowdfunding things, I think it's, it's going to be, you know, and, and you're not going to borrow from family. I think it's taking out credit cards and getting a second job and squirreling away as much money as you can. You it's know? actually what I did when I made my first short film, which cost $10,000. I saved up and I used every penny that I had when I was working as a publicist. And I put it all into this little movie, which ended up getting me an agent. And uh, the the feature film, uh, there was going to be a feature film based on that short film. Um, that fell through, but I ended up being represented by the William Morris Agency, and that helped make connections in other places. So. Yeah, no, I think, I think uh, you know, there's a little bit of having to bet on yourself. And, and otherwise, if you're not going to use, you know, but I, I, I will tell you, I produced a short uh, that we did do crowdfunding for. And we, we you know, we were only aiming to raise about $15,000, but the campaign was so strong, we ended up banking $35,000. And nice. I mean, you know, and I was telling you the other day, like we, we won an award uh, that, that Clive Barker was on the jury for, you know? Awesome uh, yeah. So, so, and the, and the short did wonders for the director and, and played at dozens and dozens of film festivals. So, you know, at the end of the day, that was, that was really worth it. And while the director did have to put, you know, some of his own resources into it, he still walked away with a much bigger budget than he ever could have afforded on his own. Yeah, so, and I don't know about crowdfunding today. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that was and that was five years ago. So yeah, I yeah. think it's a lot more difficult because so many more people are doing it, and I, I think it's really tough to find people who are willing to throw their money at your project. But you know, the more you can be responsible for your own content, and the less you have to rely on other people, especially when it comes to financial matters, whether in movies or any other world. Um, the more self-reliant you can be, the better. And I know that's easy to say when you're not doing it, but yeah, but, um, but the, the, the best, yeah, the best traditional way though, if I can put a button on it is just like you said, it's, it's having in writing and having a great script and that will usually attract the right amount of, you know, agents and managers and executives and eventually, you know, I mean, Nightmare Cinema, we had a great script and, and that helped yeah. attract the financier. 
you know? And we had great people attached and, yep. and people yep. they knew. If you're starting out and you're not living in LA, you're doing something on your own in Ohio or something, it's, it's going to be a tougher reach. But this is a digital virtual world and everybody's on Zoom now. And uh, so with luck, you'll be able to pitch to the right people. It's just getting an agent or a manager or somebody who has access to the right people um, who, uh, who you need to make contact with. Yep. and convince them that your material is fantastic. Exactly. Well, speaking of generating fantastic material, uh, <laughs> Nath writes, question for Mick and Joe. I'm currently reading on writing, uh -huh. and I'm interested in hearing both your processes to actually sit down and write every day. Do you have a set place room where you go? Uh, do you have a page quota? Well, I was lucky to be born with an affinity for writing. And it's something that I've been doing since I was 12 years old. Um, I've been living in the same home for 35 years. And uh, uh, in the late 90s, I had my office studio where I do the podcast and do all my writing and everything built right next door. Um, so I come here every day, I do my work. I, when I'm writing on spec, I don't plan it. I mean, I have an idea of what I'm doing, but I just come in and start with page one and I just start writing. I like to do 10 pages a day. I try and do like six before lunch. And then I only have four after lunch. You know, I always liked to do my homework early when I was a kid. So my evenings were free and I don't feel the burden of what I've got. But I like writing in the morning. Um, I actually enjoy the process a lot. Um, a lot of people struggle through writing and uh, I'm lucky enough that it's something I really enjoy doing. And I, I love the playfulness of words and, you know, having a, a communicative vocabulary that makes me want to tell stories in a way that people want to watch or read them. So my process when I'm in the middle of a project is to just come in here every day after breakfast and start pounding away and entertaining myself. It's different if I'm writing for money. Um, if I have a deal, then you have to write an outline, get that approved. Then you have to do a beat sheet, get that approved. And then you write a draft and you have to know what direction you're going at all times. And that's not nearly as much fun for me. I've done it. I don't do it much anymore. Um, but uh, it's a totally different process, but it's no, no less fun doing it. It's just working in a different way that's more proscribed. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with everything you just said. I mean, I try and hit a, a page count per day when I am writing. Uh, it's not as, as lofty as 10, but you know, if I can get, if I can get five, I'll be very happy. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, and I, and I would write and, and think of stories and stuff, I would do, do it lying on my bed. And so I, weirdly, when I get my best writing done is when I'm still lying on a bed. Oh, uh, good so, for you. <laughs> so if I can like recreate that position, I feel like I can tap back into that. Uh, and I, I tend to get more pages done when I'm laying down than versus sitting in a chair. Which well, is, that's uh, something which is interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, it's just, I don't know. It's just interesting. Uh, the lie down method. Yeah. 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 I, I heard, I forget. I think it was the writer of Trumbo. You remember that movie that came out a couple of years ago? Sure. In fact, Dalton Trumbo is the grandfather of my brother's wife. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, so the writer of that, that biopic, uh, he actually has a chair that reclines and it holds the computer over him, uh, so that he can type while like reclined. And this way, if he drifts off to sleep, it's okay. And he'll just wake back up and start writing. (laughs) I thought it was so funny. What's that? Dalton Trombo himself would write in the bathtub. In the bathtub with <laughs> blank across the bathtub yeah. and a typewriter right there, and he would type in the bathtub. So it made it made me feel less weird when I heard stories like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. But, uh, but yeah, I think you know, I think on writing is great. I mean, we've talked at length about how wonderful that book is, but I think it really is good at helping you really think about where your creative space is and helping you kind of set and achieve goals. And I think that can help you be your most productive. Yeah. It is the most inspiring book for a creative. uh, I think that I certainly that I've ever read. Absolutely. Lundo NB asks, how do you break down a scene visually for a shot list, Nick? Well, first of all, you figure out what the emotional intent is. And when I do a shot list, I do something fairly expansive. I first put down where it is in the context of the story, what comes before, what comes after, because you shoot a scene at a time and rarely in order, Uh, what I want the emotional intent to be, and what the visual style, what we're trying to convey, what colors will help amplify the emotional content of the scene, what lenses there will be. My shot lists are fairly specific about what lenses and things like that I want them to be, but loose enough so that I can vamp on the set because you're always being thrown uh, a left hook when you get on the set and there are surprises for you that greet you every day and the door is on the other side of the room than what you imagined. Um, you know, you can have a, a, a layout of what each of your sets or locations is, but there are still surprises there. But the main thing is to give the actors and the crew members an idea of what the intent of the scene is beyond just a superficial read. What is the heart of it? Is this intended to connect to something else in another scene that you might not have thought of? Are there colors that help heighten the intent of what you're doing? Um, Will a wide lens convey more? I always like to see the geography of a room or any location in some form or another, um, whether it's the first shot you shoot, which usually is because everything is sketched in in the master scene and then they're refined as you get closer. It's easier on the actors and it gives them a sense of of context and all of that. So yeah, I have a a pretty thought out method that I share with the key crew people before we start shooting that day. And remind me, I feel like I've heard you talk about emotional indexing before. Uh, is that is that related to your shot list or is that just scenes in general? No, it's with the shot list. When I give out a shot list, it'll have an emotional content that we're going for. You know, if it's it's a melancholy, nostalgic thing. And just to remind people where where we are at this stage in the game. So we're all on the same page and 
we all, you know, there will be a visual manifesto that I will do beforehand that's an overall view that's two or three pages of what we're going for stylistically and emotionally and, and theoretically and philosophically. And trying not to be too lofty, but in terms where everybody can understand and if you're the production designer, if you're the cine uh, cinematographer, if you're the composer, if you're the editor, the, then we all know what boat we're sailing on together. Absolutely. And the more you do this stuff ahead of time, the more creative you can be when you're on set. Exactly. And there's nothing more exciting than discovering something on a set where an actor will do something surprising that inspires you to change the scene for the better. Um, or a cameraman will come up with an idea or you get a, you see a framing that you hadn't thought of when, when you see everything in position and the people uh, being uh, placed like uh, chess pieces around the board. So it's true. It's true. Uh, Greg wants to know your thoughts on low budget indie horror versus studio horror. What do you think the advantages and disadvantages of each are? Well, the obvious advantage to studio is money the and accessibility. Your film is going to be in theaters one day uh, when we're back in movie theaters and there will be distribution. Uh, there will be enough money to fulfill your vision uh, if you're on the same page with the studio on where you're going. However, there's a lot more to be said for the independence of, of not having to please so many masters. The more money is in your budget, the more people you have to satisfy. Uh, and that means whether it's in television, the standards and practices or commercials, uh, the sponsors have input, the studio wants a certain rating and they force you to go for that. Um, they want to cast a certain way because they've got deals with actors or they want to be in business with so-and-so. So there are a lot of places where you compromise a vision. That can happen just as much in independent film. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, it can. And I've certainly had that happen in my independent and studio experiences and television experiences, whether they're network or, or pay TV, that sort of thing. But the chances are greater that you will have more creative independence in the independent world if you establish yourself in a certain way or you you align yourself with people who think the same way you do. Uh, if you have to compromise on your budget, it frees you to use your creativity much more extensively. You know, it's easy to pay to solve a problem. It's difficult to use your mind and your creative process and tap the creative juices of all of those people around you to do something that's even better than what your original plan is. So, I mean, between the two, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Independently, you may not have the money to fulfill the vision you have, the actors you want, that sort of thing. But you usually have a little more creative muscle than you do in the big studio situation, unless you are an established master that can do whatever he wants. If you're Chris Nolan or whatever, it's like, here's your $200 million. And, what and, we, and we do know that Chris Nolan will now do whatever he wants. So. <laughs> <laughs> we do indeed. Yes. Uh, 
Rick wants to know about your experience working as a story editor editor on Amazing Stories. Uh, what did your day to day entail? I feel like we've we've talked broadly about Amazing Stories, but what did the, the day to day entail for Mick on that show? It was it was my film school. It was incredible. Um, all of these different directors, and which inspired me in terms of Masters of Horror when I was conceiving that. But my day-to-day would be either I was writing one of the scripts that I was lucky enough to have been assigned to, or writing a story and pitching it to Stephen and seeing what uh, if it was something that interested him or not. And several of the stories I did were originals uh, on that show. Um, But the main job every day was whatever rewriting needed to be done. Each writer, other than the producers of the, of the show, um, Joshua Brand and John Falsey, um, would be contracted to do their first draft and one rewrite. So rather than pay these writers to do a second, third, fourth rewrite, a story editor or a producer would do that. At that time, uh, there weren't as many producers on a series as there are now, and the story editor was actually doing the work of a producer. So Joe Minion, who had written After Hours for Marty Scorsese, a really great film, had written this script called Mirror, Mirror. uh, And that's the one Marty wanted to do. Um, But there were a lot of problems with that script that the network had with it. And Spielberg had a bunch of notes and the like. And so they liked the idea. But my job was to do a page one rewrite. Wow. So that whole script ended up being my script, but it was Joe Minion's name. I was told at the time the producers sat me down and said, you know, we're team players here. And yes, you could go for an arbitration, but, you know, you're part of the team. And uh, we think it would be a good idea if if Joe got the credit, which which was fine and understandable. And I was brand new at this and it was the best possible job in the world. But that was my job was doing rewrites after the rewrites that each of the individual writers was paid to do. So I did things. I worked on Bill Deere's Mummy, Mum, uh, Mummy Daddy uh, and originals of my own, like Go to the Head of the Class, which I wrote with Tom McLaughlin. Uh, Without Diana was an original story that I also wrote the script for. And then I wrote scripts based on Stephen's stories. Uh, I, I wrote or co-wrote about 10 of the episodes out of the 44. Amazing. Incredible. And Amazing. you got to work with such such incredible filmmakers too. So. Uh, no, that's that's awesome. Thank you for you know shedding shedding light. I know there's been a lot of people who have been wondering that, so that was that was a great question and uh, a lot of great questions today. And uh, that's it. You survived, Nick. You're you can get off the slab now. <laughs> <laughs> Another AMA. I'm ready for more blood. Okay. Well, <laughs> if you have questions you'd like to ask me, please send them to Joe Russo tweets or to Mick Garris PM on Twitter and on Instagram or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. And thank you for joining us. And we look forward to the next time. Joe, thank you. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 